0: hello everybody and welcome to the 78th episode of mtg fast finance the podcast that tries not to devastate your bank account mtg fast finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of magic the gathering finance collection management and speculation
1: a quick message from our sponsor face to face games face provides competitive pricing on magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the us and canada check out face-to-face card pricing via mtgprice.com whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec
0: i'm your host james chilcott aka at mtg critic on twitter my co-host tonight is travis allen aka at wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game magic the gathering
1: Good evening, James, and good evening, listeners. Uh, Excited for our 78th episode this week. We have all sorts of interesting stuff to share with you on the eve of Pro Tour Hour of Devastation. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. All right, Travis, what's on the agenda tonight? Well, James, tonight we have an episode in three parts. Segment one is our top movers. We'll look at the cards that have seen the largest price changes over the past week. We are uh, certainly showing that the wisdom of the summer doldrums is a little less wise than it used to be. Segment two is our cards to watch where we're going to look at the cards that we think might rise in price in the future. And segment three will be our topic of the week. This week, we're going to respond to a uh, viewer contact that has some some interesting information. We'll also talk about Pro Tour Hour of Devastation, which is starting... Uh, well, it actually started about an hour and a half ago, and uh, standard should be triggering firing in about two hours, so we'll kind of cover all that. So let's jump in on Segment 1, our top movers. I'm going to throw these first two in together. We have both Chrome Mox and Rings of Bright Earth, both of the masterpieces. Both started right around the same place, $55, $60. Both jumped up to right around the same place, 100 ish maybe a little bit less, and um, you know rings of bright earth uh especially after extra planar lens rings of bright earth seemed like the next target it's another one of those sort of utility edh artifacts um that i that you know i truth be told i had my eyes on rings of bright earth i just hadn't you know gotten around and moved the money around to buy them yet um Chrome Mox is a real stretch. Uh, I mean, there's like one legacy deck that plays Chrome Mox these days. So really both of these boil down to people saw all of the other dominoes falling and went, well, I want to get in on the action and just snag them all up. So I expect Rings of Bright Earth will be a lot more stable here than Chrome Mox because like Chrome Mox and Grindstone, I just I can't fathom who would need those.
0: Yeah, I mean, the art on Chrome OX is gorgeous, but the demand profile has to be pretty weak. And it's, you know, it's interesting how this is playing out, because when I first started buying these things in, you know, late December, early January, we, I was basically just buying alongside the market. The whole reason I started looking at this was because Masterpiece Soul Ring inventory was already so low uh, in late December that it seemed self-evident that that domino was going to be the first to fall. Um, but we're now at the part where a lot of this is hype, right? So, the, car, the masterpieces that start tumbling from you know a few back and, and forward are going to be uh, ones that you're going to end up holding for a lot longer. So, I mean, we haven't had too much trouble unloading Masterpiece Soul Rings at market price, um, even as it's gone up through two or three different plateaus. But I think you're going to have trouble unloading Chrome Ox at $100, and I suspect that if you bought at $55, you are going to end up selling under 70 Rings of Bright Hearth might do a little better. It could probably hold a 70 to $80 price tag relatively easily, um, just because there's just not any additional inventory entering the market. But both of those examples are from Kaladesh, not Revolt, so there are more of them around overall.
1: Okay. Well, that's good to know. Uh, you know what? Why don't you give us our next card, James?
0: Uh, one of the big movers on the foil side this week was Lichlord of Unks. Uh, this is out of uh, an Alara block uh, set. The foils moved from about $7 to a d- doubled up to about 15 This is almost certainly on the hype for Scarab God because the Lichlord uh, makes a bunch of blue-black wizard zombie tokens, um, which plays right into the whole Scarab God scene in EDH
1: okay that is a little deeper than i would uh typically want to go but sure i can respect the ambition i suppose <laughs> um Next on our list is Champion of Wits from Hour of Devastation. Non foils jumped from 350 up to about eight dollars or nine dollars at this point. This is pretty much on the back of Pro Tour hype. You know, I'm, I'm using the word hype here. It may or may not be founded. It sounds like a lot of players think it's actually good. Um, I did write about this actually on MTG Price like two weeks ago. I put it in one of my Monday Watchtower articles when it was like at $1.50 and said, "Hey, there's a lot of rumors floating around about this on Twitter." And I think within like 24 or 48 hours, it had jumped up to four or five. So looks like there's still lot of interest in it um this is definitely you know it's obviously way too late to buy this Um, but you know james i will say that this is a card to keep your eye on come like late august early september it's incredibly possible that this will fall hard after the pro tour back into the sub dollar range or you know dollar and change um and you'll be you know you'll be able to ride a second wave on this come october
0: Yeah, this is a card that's a sell. Um, I echoed that in my Pro Tour preface article that just went live uh, shortly ago. There are two decks that you're watching for to do well at the Pro Tour to help this card either hold its plateau or potentially get up to 15, which is about the max it could ever hope to hold for any period of time, um, as a rare from a set that just started getting opened. The... um, the first stack is the Teamer Emerge Build that was top aiding as as uh, recently as SEG Cincinnati. Um, and has showed up uh, frequently on Magic Online. Um, those are the decks that are running uh, all of the usual graveyard shenanigans um, and some Emerge cards. And in those builds, Champion Wits is really good because you get to put a bunch of stuff in the yard um, and then Champion Wits probably dies, blocking something bigger, and then later you bring it back and it's a 4-4 and you draw 4 and discard 2, which is a nice little like card boost in the mid to late game. Um, so that's one of the decks you're looking out for. The other deck is, is a little bit... Uh, Uh, newer it finished in the SCG standard classic uh, in atlanta on july 23rd so just last weekend Um, this was not a huge tournament uh, but the the deck was still turning heads because it was running uh, multiple copies of mausoleum wanderer that's the one one spirit from eldritch moon um, minister of inquiries uh, as a four of uh, three inspector Four Champion of Wits, four Angel of Invention, which is why that card's also been popping. Um, three copies of Cataclysmic Gear Hulk, which is uh, a card we're going to talk about a little later. Um, and then it runs Refurbish alongside Gate to the Afterlife and God Pharaoh's Gift. So use the gate to potentially go get the gift. Um, once you get the gift in play, or you've discarded the gift and then you bring it back with refurbish, you then just start trying to start pulling all of these great creatures um, back out of your graveyard as four fours and they have all have cool abilities i mean three-bit inspector is great when it's a one two for one but when it's a four four that investigates it gets pretty sick when you didn't have to pay for it
1: yeah i will say so uh and it's interesting kind of the dynamic we're ending up with because um you know god pharaoh's gift is a really powerful artifact uh and i definitely liked it when i saw it show up but at the same time, you have, what is it, a Braid floating around, which is such a great answer because it can kill creatures and it kills artifacts you know, with basically zero opportunity cost. Um, so you know, there's you kind of get that tension, uh, which really you should see in Standard all the time where you have powerful cards and powerful answers instead of powerful cards and mediocre answers, which is what the format was when Aetherworks Marvel was floating around. So uh, a lot of interesting stuff going on right now in Standard. It's a shame. Nobody's going to play it. Yeah, I mean there's,
0: um, there's no doubt that a braid is a powerful card, but the deal, the deal with this deck is that it overwhelms you with artifacts. Like there's seven just between Gate and Godfather's Gift, Refurbish gives you a rebuy on whatever you're trying to get out of the yard, Cataclysmic Gear Hulk cleans up some of the t- the board against the token decks or the low-slung aggressive decks um and is also an artifact. Angel, Angel of Invention Um, gives you the option of dropping two servos into play. And so
1: a braid can just, you can basically just run the mode of a braids. Oh, I mean, that's, that's always an option too, right? Overwhelm the hate. Um, okay, so next up on our list is Incremental Blight from Shadowmoor. We probably talked about this at some point in the past. I'd have to go back and look at the show notes, but it's a foil from Shadowmoor. Moor, went from a dollar to $3 to five mana sorcery. Put a minus one, minus minus on one on one cre- creature, then a minus one, minus one... Two minus one, minus one counters on a second and then some more on a third creature. So basically you put a bunch of minus one, minus one counters on up to three creatures. Um, Certainly in response to uh, Hapatra and the Scorpion God. um, Honestly, I'm a little surprised we didn't see this pop up before, but I don't think we did. And also, in any case, it was only from like a dollar to three dollars, you know, in that range. So, certainly not enough to have actually made any money. Um, You know, I could see this maybe being at the seven, eight dollar range over a little bit of time. But this is also the card that um, would be pretty easy to reprint in any of these uh, master sets. You know, it's not flavorfully tied to anything. Uh, Minus one, minus one counters are uh, a reasonably. Flexible theme that they could put into various limited environments in standard or sealed product, um, you know, the the expansion product. So, uh, not something I'd be eager to be holding on to because the price is only what it is because supply is so low.
0: And the dollar to three dollar jump is the phantom jump that we don't care about yes. anyway.
1: Yeah, we got to come up with a clever nickname for that.
0: We do, we should trademark it. So, yeah, clever nickname jump. <laughs> Next on the list is Earthshaker Kenra, which is actually a fi- uh, a fixture in the latest version of Mono Red Aggro, which is actually looking like a very reasonable option for this tournament. And I'm curious to what extent the field will end up running it. Um, these you know, Mono Red builds tend to put off a lot of the kind of folks that play in the Pro Tour unless it is so fast and so powerful that it, it looks like a lock. Um, a lot of the builds are running things like on Cop cra- Crop Crasher, Earthshaker Kenra is a four of. It was 75 cents, now it's up to three bucks. Um, again, not the kind of thing you can easily make money on, but if the deck does well on the weekend, this thing could end up in the five to six dollar range. Um, it runs a couple of Eldrazi Obligators, for Falcon Wrath Gorger, uh, two Glory Bringer, two Reality Smasher, four Skull Scar Mage. Three Thought Not Seer, one Hazaret the Fervent, and two Karizev Car- or Karizev Skyship Raider, alongside two Chandra Torch of Defiance, three Magma Spray, and three incendiary flow. So the reason you see something like in this list, you gotta ask yourself, why didn't Falconroth Gorger pop instead of Earthshaker Kenra? The answer is nobody pre-ordered Earthshaker Kenra so when they realized they needed it and wanted to run this kind of a deck they actually had to go and buy them whereas most of these cards they've picked up along the way either by cracking boosters or playing draft or playing in sealed events and they have a bunch of this other stuff lying around so when you're trying to figure out when you see a new list that is uh you know uh, part of the advent of a new version of the format you really want to look at the stuff that people are are most likely to have to get their hands on freshly
1: Mm -hmm. which is which is certainly fair i think that's a good good way to think about it is you know what cards did people pre-order and get their hands on already and which ones are they caught off guard by i'll also add in that speccing on standard red decks is something that i generally don't like to do yeah um the only time that that's something i will consider is if it's a mythic red like basically four drop that closes the game something along the lines of like if hell rider had been mythic or um, Falcon Wrath Aristocrat type of thing, those types of cards, um, Thunder Maul, Hellkite, Storm Breath Dragon, stuff at that range that kind of tops the curve. Um, but, you know, so I don't doubt that you could see some movement here, but unless you can get these Earthshakers for pennies, uh, I would stay away at all points in time.
0: Yep. What's next on the list?
1: Uh, Okay, next up for us is both Whirlpool Drake and Whirlpool Rider. Those are commons and uncommons in any particular order. From Apocalypse, we're looking at the foil copies here. About $1 to $4, uh, although a little bit of difference on one than the other. I don't remember exactly which is which. It doesn't really matter. They both uh, essentially windfall your hand. Um, which is discard them all, draw that many, which is great. And the Locust God, uh, who's back again this week to pop several cards. Um, So nothing too terribly interesting there, just some more foil, old foil cards floating around. If you've got them, I would try and get rid of them. Um, But good luck with that.
0: Yeah, the Drake's a little better than the Rider because it does the effect twice, once when it comes into play, once when it dies, um, which makes a whole bunch of Locusts and lets you draw a bunch of cards, so... There's there's something to be said for that one over the other. I think that one's also the uncommon and Rider is the common, if I'm not mistaken. But both are so old that they may as well be hyper mythics because good luck finding foils. That being said, I had one of each just sitting around in the super collection. So yanked him out this morning and see if I can trade him out in my EDH
1: binder. Yeah, if you can get rid of them, go for it. I mean, more power to you. That's probably your best bet is doing it in a trade binder. Um, okay, why don't you tell us about the next card? So I think you know a little more about this one, this one than I do. So when we're talking about the God Pharaoh's gift deck
0: for standard, um, this is also where uh, we find the reason for Angel of Invention to be popping because there's, it's a four of in that deck. Um, the ability to yank it out of the yard as a 4-4 Flying Vigilance lifelink that also makes two 1-1s one that are actually 2-2s two is just disgusting um, under a God Pharaoh's gift. So this went from a like nothing card to suddenly, oh wait, maybe this is relevant because I'm going to get to... Uh, make a Frankenstein monster out of it.
1: Okay, I can see that. It's an interesting card. Uh, certainly uh, a lot of power there. So I'll buy it. I mean, I, I understand. I shouldn't say I'm going to buy it. I understand it. <laughs> uh, good job to uh, some of my hosts on some other casts who I'm pretty sure bought a pile of these uh, for all the wrong reasons, but got lucky. So <laughs> that's really better lucky than good, right? Yeah, good magic I- quote. I have a few
0: of these sitting around, as do many of the players from this, from Standard or people that have been drafting or cracking boxes or what have you. So I suspect that a lot of these are going to flood back into the market, um, but they are mythics. They're not rares. So they, if the deck does well and stays good um, and stays good through the fall, then Angel of Invention can end up a $20 card.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's entirely possible. It is, it is a stretch, I will say, or at least it's... it's... It's not guaranteed at all, but I believe that that is a possible future for, sure. Yeah. for this, sure. This deck is looking very sexy and has a lot
0: of hype behind it coming into the pro tour. The question is whether the major teams are on it, how many people are on it, whether they're gonna, those people are gonna do well in draft because that's always the, uh, you know the the wrench in the monkey works as it were for the pro tour when you're trying to champion a deck is that if you mess up your limited portion, it may not matter um, that your standard deck was the right deck for the tournament.
1: Yeah, that's actually really funny the way that works out, that like how different the MPG Finance landscape would be after some of these pro tours if the players who have these great standard decks actually did well with them, did well in the sealed, because even if they nine oh ten oh standard, whatever, um, and they don't do well in the draft, you can go and look at the top performance standard decks and they might be the top performing standard deck. And some people might know about it, but you still don't get like the exposure and the excitement and the saturation that you needed. Um, to really cause a hard spike during the Pro Tour, as if you do well in the um, draft, but only mediocre and standard, but then make the top eight. I will say that if these guys do show up with like the best deck in the room, um, but do poorly in draft and still end up with like a 10 standard record, you will see that filter out to the Star City events afterwards if it's still a good deck. So, like, the prices will move eventually when people realize it's the real thing, um, but it's not going to happen overnight. It would take weeks.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, th- this deck is set up to address a mid-range grind fest. It will not do as well under aggro pressure. So we need to see how the the meta shapes up to predict how uh, how many copies might make it through. I could see a copy of this in the top eight. Um, a copy just missing top eight also super possible. Um, I'd be very surprised for somebody to tell me that this ended up being 20 to 40% of the meta or something.
1: Yeah, that I would also be surprised by that.
0: All right. So, moving on, we've got, uh, uh, right after Angel Invention, we've got God's, God Pharaoh's Gift itself that moved from 50 cents to $3. That's a 500% gain and also the kind of thing that it's hard to make money on. Um, you know, if you pick these up for $2 a set and you get to out them at $10 a set, whoopee, you made a $5 bill. Um, yeah. But... You know, I saw people like showing off double fistfuls of this stuff on Twitter. So hopefully, they get a chance to get out before uh, (laughs) the possibility that this just doesn't go anywhere um, at this particular tournament. Um, That's not to say that this deck doesn't break out at some other point down the road. Um, There's a there's a lot of interesting things, a lot of synergy going on in those those brews, um, and I wouldn't count it out, Um, but it's only done well at a relatively small tournament um, and had a bunch of streaming and magic online performance. So this is it. This is the big stage. Let's see what happens.
1: Yeah. I, uh, when God of showed up in the spoiler, I looked at it and I'm like, that is a pretty powerful card. And I could definitely see that like being a thing, but I am still buying zero copies because it is not going to be widespread enough for it to be worth my time and effort. And I will let other people go for it. So If you do and you make money, I'm more, I'm happy for you. Congratulations, but, uh, just not a little too much, uh, risk for not enough reward on that one for me. Um, next up is quest for renewal from world wake. We're looking at the foil copies jumped from under a dollar to five bucks. Supposedly there was one copy when I looked earlier this afternoon, but the market price was still low. Uh, I talked to a few people as best as we could figure out. It was just somebody bought the last cheap foil copy, I guess. Uh, there doesn't seem to be anything that popped up that we didn't already know unless, uh, unless our listeners know something that I don't. The
0: only thing that jumps out to me is this might be uh, on the back of brewing around Intruder Alarm again. Um, but I haven't seen anything on this, so hopefully somebody else has got a, got a clue that they can buy for us. You know, maybe a 3 inspector wants to drop something off.
1: <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, I, I believe that it could be several things, but we don't know them. Okay, uh, I'm going to do the next one because I like this card. Uh, we did talk about it last week. We talked about the foil this week. It is the non-foil we're looking at. That is Mind Moil from Ravnica. Started off at Change. Uh, and is now up to five dollars for like nearly over a six hundred percent increase supposedly. Um, also because of Locust God, every time you cast a spell, you uh, wait. Crud! I said it earlier too. And now Windfall. Every time you cast a spell, you Windfall. Uh, so you can make a lot of bugs real quickly. It's a pretty funny card too. This is a good card to put in your decks with re, your red EDH decks. Uh, just if you want to amuse yourself and others. Um, it's a cool card. But finally the non-foils moved i don't think that you're gonna be able to get five bucks for these uh supplies probably good enough especially once the tens of thousands of copies that are sitting in bulk boxes everywhere come out and hit tcg player i mean i've probably got like 10 or 15 floating around here myself um that i haven't even bothered to look for which is a good reminder to myself to go look for them um so I don't think, really think this is going anywhere. Locust God would have to become uh, an, a very prevalent part of the commander landscape in order for mine oil to really hold a strong price. Uh, I think your best bet, if you have these, is to toss these in your trade binder and look for people building the Locust God and try and get trade value for them because selling them on TCG is just not going to be worth your time. And I don't think buy lists will really move that much.
0: Yeah, I, I think an EDH trade binder is the only kind of trade binder I'm interested in at this particular juncture. Uh, and it's a really good way to get rid of these like old school cards that all of a sudden are supposedly worth a few bucks you know trade four or five of them out for something 20 or 30 dollars that you want like a masterpiece actually planar lens or something and uh, away you go you're in you're doing good
1: yeah it's a really good way to zero out all of those obnoxious like overhead costs that are oppressive when trying to sell a three or four dollar card online but not difficult at all when um, you know trading locally and get rid of all that stuff okay the thing, the thing you remember about oh. edh players right is that a lot of these like there's some people have been in the game
0: a little bit a long time whatever but edh as a format has not really been as super popular as it is now up until the last few years so you know a lot of people threw out or bulked or sold or just forgot about cards that they had sitting around that could have been used for edh um, Lord knows how much bulk I threw out that could have been, probably had tons of EDH gold in it um, before I even realized that was going to be a thing. Tell and, me about it. <laughs> and so because of that, like if you're sitting down to trade with an EDH player, they're, they are way less likely to have all the things they need, especially if they're trying to build some new god that just came out that activated a whole bunch of cards. Um, because, you know, tracking down some of these 15, 20 year old cards is not super easy. In smaller communities, the store may not even have any copies in stock.
1: Yeah, that's very true. You know, and you figure you know, for you and I and a lot of our listeners uh, buying things online is you don't even think about it, right? Like I buy objects in the, the only thing I buy uh, in brick and mortar stores is perishable food. But not everyone lives that life. Uh, there are plenty of people who won't buy cards online for any variety of reasons. So even if they like even if they know about it and they want it, they can't necessarily buy it online. So they need to find a copy locally to trade for. Um, So, you know, it's, 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 if you're, if you're going to stores regularly, it is really worth trying to keep uh, a little bit of a binder to carry with you, you know, um, in the age of phone trading, uh, you're not really gonna be able to get value on people too often. uh, But that doesn't mean that you can't turn recently popped cards into stuff that's uh, got a little more potential in it. um, Those are where your edges are.
0: So here's a couple of sexy little tricks for EDH binder that I used a few weeks ago when I was pulling a new one together. Um, Organize the EDH binder by commander. Take a copy of that commander, put it in the middle of a nine page and surround it with the coolest cards that you have that are necessary for that commander. Put price tags on those cards that aren't for selling cash because you're probably not going to be allowed to do that at your local LGS, but just so that you don't have to look up your price, what you're looking to get in trade value. You just have to double check the price of whatever you're trying to get from them, which is a much smoother, quicker transaction. Gets you in and it gets you out and allows for impulse purchases as people are flipping through
1: their binder. Okay. All right. Lots of good information out there for you guys. Let's move on to segment two, our cards to watch. Um, James, why don't you get us started? I have nothing but terrible picks for you guys this week. Um, (laughs) It's a theme week.
0: (laughs) It is a theme week. Here's the thing about Pro Tour Hour of Devastation. If you look at the metagame breakdown as expressed in recent tournaments and through Magic Online, this field looks healthier and more wide open than any we've had for probably the last year. What that means is there's a whole bunch of decks that might do well here, and none of which seem to be more than 10 or 15% of the total metagame uh you know zombies has fallen back down there's a couple of rogue brews on the rise martyr vehicles you can't really count it out because it's got a bunch of powerful stuff um the emerge decks have found a new have found new life um there's a lot of things going on and what that means is that it's much harder to predict what's actually going to spike here a lot of this is probably going to depend on how wizards chooses to focus on emerging tech on camera um, that usually drives some hype spikes that you might be able to sell into if you're already holding the cards. But if you're ordering as it's happening and that deck doesn't make it, ends up like 1-5 or the the person piloting it doesn't make day two, then your hype spec is going to fall apart and you're never going to be able to get out of it profitably, uh, at least not in the near to mid-future. So uh, all of these cards that I'm mentioning have are underpriced for their rarity and are worth taking a hard look at if they start showing up a lot on camera, but none of them are sure things, and there are many other specs we've given you over the over the previous weeks um, that are still out there, ready to be plucked, and are probably better options. Now, with that massive disclaimer in hand, let's talk about how Cataclysmic Hulk is a $2 mythic that could easily end up at $8 to $10 mythic if this God Pharaoh's gift deck is real. Okay, tell me about it. So the deal here is that like if you're expecting a lot of white blue monument decks, Oketra's monument decks that generate massive value out of like repetitively creating bonus tokens, then a Gear Hulk effect that was really bad against Marty vehicles because if you slap down the Cataclysmic Gear Hulk against Marty vehicles like six months ago, you probably find them with Scrap Heap Scrounger, Gideon, and Heart of Kieran on the table, and nothing dies because they get to keep one of each of those things, um, and you know, but now if you're facing down a, a board that's like stuffed with creatures on the other side, the Gear Hulk only lets them keep one. And if your whole game plan is that you just want to stay alive long enough to get your God Pharaoh's gift going, and then you're going to start cranking stuff out of your yard um, with a lot of flying power and so forth, then the Gear Hulk might hold its slot, which is often main deck three copies usually. Um, and if that deck does really well and puts multiple copies into the top eight then, you know, there's no way that this Mythic stays $2. There there would be a hype spike at some point. It'll jump up closer to 10 And then the question is, you know, how deep does it get in the tournament? How prevalent does it end up looking when Saffron runs his numbers for day two um, based on the numbers that Wizards publishes? And, you know, does the deck look like it has legs coming out of the weekend?
1: Yeah, I think Cataclysmic Gearhulk is actually possibly the best Gearhulk, which is an odd thing to say. Um, But I do remember when the cycle was spoiled, I uh, looked at this one and I was like, this could be the sleeper Gearhawk in the same way that like Frost Titan was sort of the sleeper Titan at the time. Um, Frost Titan was considered the worst one until everyone was playing Primeval Titan and people realized the best counter to a Titan was Frost Titan. Uh, I think Cataclysmic Gearhawk is very powerful. You can probably hear one in the background as my fiance wanders down our metal staircase with a giant broken boot on her broken foot and <laughs> <You> get the <laughs> metal steps in the background but and Gearhulk does do a lot uh, to the board in a way that none of the other gearhawks really do um, it is much harder to harness that power than something like a verdant gearhawk or a torrential gearhawk but the total mana that you value you can get out of it is is really good so against the board of like Gideon uh and Gideon token right it looks terrible. But against a deck of, uh, you know, a board of like 10 creatures and one artifact, it's like, okay, goodbye. You know, you get to keep a 1-1 in your monument and I get a 4-5 Vigilance and whatever else I'm doing. Um, so I think it has a lot of uh, a lot of utility locked up in it and the metagame is going to kind of dictate how powerful it is. But, you know, if you're getting these at, uh, you know, under $2, a dollar a piece, I think these are awesome. I mean, this is fine in EDH2. It's, it's a playable card for sure.
0: Yeah, so I mean, at two dollars, I'd be willing to go on a, in and on a couple of play sets now. I'm not gonna. It's not the kind of thing like I'm gonna go deep on. This is like one of these outsider specs that I would put into digging for dollars, um, and that I mentioned in the, my pro tour preface. Just because this is this looks like emerging tech. Um, how it plays out, will we will know in a couple of hours. And one of the interesting things here is that the the night owls are gonna get the advantage again this time because it's 10 p.m. Thursday night while we're recording this. Um, standard starts in about an hour. And the first few rounds, a lot of people are going to be in bed, tucked away, sleeping so they can get up for work tomorrow. And those of us that get to stay up all night with babies are probably going to make some money.
1: Okay. Well, good for you. I'm going to bed. <laughs> um, you know, what? I'm going to do both of mine together at the same time because they're essentially the same kind of demand profile here. Uh, and there's no point in splitting them up. So we know that the commander decks uh, coming Soon are going to have dragons, cats, and vampires. Um, the fourth tribe, because there are only four decks, is uh, looks like a human, and it's a toss-up between either, at this point, wizards or clerics. Now, we don't know for sure. Um, all we have is a piece of artwork, and that's kind of what we're going on. So my two picks are predicated on the, on the fact that it is a cleric deck. If it's a wizard deck, you can throw all this out the window, and none of it matters. If it is a cleric deck... Uh, I think there are two choices that jump out at me as kind of as being cleric matter cards that are still very um, would still be valuable with a launch of new clerics. Uh, you know, some of them are cleric matters, but it's like a top of cleric to prevent two damage or something like that. Like I don't think those are really going to matter. Um, but the two cards I'm looking at are uh, Celestial Gatekeeper and Rotlong Reanimator. Um Celestial Gatekeeper foils are around $3, Rotlung Reanimator foils are around 6 to 7. Um I think the Gatekeeper could hit, you know, $10, $12, $15 for foils. Rotlung Reanimator could get into the $15 range for foils. Um both of them are going to work very well if you're playing Cleric Tribal. Um Supply, there's not a lot of supply on there, but they are out there. You can find them, uh, especially if you start looking. Probably at your local store, or some of these other channels that um, definitely you know wouldn't have already kind of been picked over uh, when Eile came out and people got briefly interested in clerics. Uh, shout out to Jason Alt, by the way, who when Eile came out told everyone to go buy cleric cards, and then nobody built any cleric decks at all. So uh, thanks. Thanks for that, Jason. Um, <laughs> so there you go. I think both of these are the same type of thing we see with all of the um, all of the other tribal cards and the, the, the non-foils I want to stay away from because they could get reprinted. The foils, especially Old Border, I like grabbing cheap copies if you can find them. Um, but of course, this tribe has to get printed for either of these cards to matter.
0: Yeah, and for what it's worth, I actually think that it's going to be wizards, not clerics. But I also think that it doesn't matter which of the two it is, because as you said, no one would build clerics last time. They may not build clerics this time. They may not build wizards this time. And of the four tribes, if you just say them aloud—dragons, cats, vampires, and cleric slash wizards—I think it's pretty clear that the la- the the latter is the least exciting. Um, yeah. Now. You know, if you believe it's wizards, um, you might want to be picking up different set of foils like Stony Brook Banneret, Patron Wizard, Void Mage Prodigy, Archaeomancer, and Riptide Laboratory are all safe bets um, if wizard decks are a thing. A lot of this is going to depend on you know, regardless of whether it's clerics or wizards, it's going to depend on how sexy these commanders are. Right? Um, if the commanders are kind of mediocre and forgettable, then it's, nothing's going to happen. If they are super cool, um, build arounds that get people excited, like. Uh, we saw it with Hypatra and Scarab God and and uh, Locust God, um, then, you know, there might be some movement. Um, but I, I I think it's going to be tough for anybody to unseat some of the real powerhouses like Brea and Atraxa from last year. Um, uh, I haven't seen anything yet from these sets that is nearly as exciting as those are. Um, so we'll have to see how it plays out.
1: Oh, well, I mean, so I completely agree, first of all, that it is the least exciting sounding of the four. I also don't think there's any chance that they could come anywhere close to unseating Brea and Attraxa in terms of popularity. They will certainly be more niche than that. Um, My hope here is that if Wizards does roll out a Cleric or a Wizard deck, either one of them, frankly, either both tribes are are fairly under supported there's not a lot out there to work with already and there's not there's not like a growing head of steam of popularity of those tribes so hopefully if it is say a cleric deck they really come hard and like we're going to give you some awesome tools to really push excuse me clerics into um a great space that you might want to play with not half assed a cleric deck give you one playable commander and not kind of grow the space that they work in so you know hopefully it'll be the former you know they'll make you want to play clerics um especially given that it's been a tribe that has kind of leaned towards like preventing damage which is not an exciting mechanic either uh so i'm hoping they'll find the space for it um but and not kind of half-ass it but if they do then yeah i mean these are just not going to do much for you but, okay. Well, those are my two for the week. Uh, what else you got for us?
0: So, the other two probably bad but might make you some money. Standard specs uh, that jump out at me um, from my preview uh, for the pro tour um, Angel of Sanctions is also a two to three dollar mythic that could easily jump higher. It started in around 15 when it was first announced, that was an Amon Ket uh, mythic. It now is sneaking into decks uh, in standard, specifically White Blue Monument, which I think we will see uh, significant uh, presence for at this tournament. This is the deck that runs Thraben Inspector, we're Militia Captain, Selfless Spirit, Bygone Bishop, Spell Queller, and Cloud Blazer alongside Oketra's Monument to just generate overwhelming Uh, board presence and value. It's just like a crazy value engine once it gets rolling. Um, And it gets to run three copies of Dust to Dawn, which is also a card to keep your eye on. Um, Also a gorgeous foil. Um, We were looking at one at the Pro Tour Toronto, if I remember correctly. Um, And they don't actually run uh, their copies of Angel of Sanctions in the main, usually. They pull them out of the sideboard three or four copies um, against grindy matchups. This is the three, four flying angel for five that basically exiles a creature until it leaves play. And then later when you embalm it or bring it back in some other way, um, it gets to do it all over again. So really good if you're trying to, you know, you're facing off against a deck with a bunch of big threats and you want to get rid of them. Um, It's actually also not creatures. Sorry, it exiles target non-land permanence. So it could be useful against things like God Pharaoh's Gift as well.
1: Yeah, that is kind of nifty. Um, planeswalkers too, so that's good as well. Um, I forgot this card existed, to be perfectly honest. Um, I'm sure other people haven't. <laughs> uh, it is cool, and you know, if you are playing Godfrey's Gift yourself, kind of getting the free embalm is pretty nice there as well, or I guess the free eternalize, whatever. What a mix up between those two mechanics but sure you know as far as really cheap mythics go that have uh, a fair bit of power on them that could really do something meaningful i mean i i like this right up there with cataclysmic gear hulk you know anytime you're looking at dollar fifty dollar mythics uh that have the power level that these cards do you know it, it's it always piques my interest because those are what uh you know legends are made of
0: yeah Th- this next one's even like more sketchy in terms of its support the only piece of information i can share with you about vizier of the menagerie is that it's jumped hard on magic online um, over the last 36 hours or so now take that with a grain of salt because my understanding is that uh, magic online has been practically unplayable for the last two days because nobody can log into it so i i think that price spikes uh there might uh need to be reconsidered But this, is again, is the 3-4 Mythic from Amonkhet that lets you look at the top card of your library, and if it's a creature card, you can cast it off the top, and you can spend mana as though it were mana of any type to cast creature spells. So maybe there's a Vizier deck coming to the Pro Tour. Maybe it's going to be super awesome. Maybe it's just going to be in the hands of Craig Wesko, and it's just going to fall flat. Um, Who knows what will happen? Um, I think Vizier is an excellent long-term pickup for EDH um once it gets down into like the two to three dollar range um so if you want to get a couple of play sets speculatively in and around 350 to four you're probably not going to do too badly i don't think it's going to get going to get much lower than that um but you know it just really depends on how lucky you're feeling this weekend
1: yeah sure uh it's a cool card. I mean, it's <laughs> you are uh, as close to gambling as you can get in Magic Finance when if you go specking on this, but more power to you guys.
0: So I've, I've just got one bonus pick since they're all sketchy. Um, another sketchy white card is that uh, it's not really sketchy. The card's powerful. But one of the things I've noticed in some of the online lists for Mardu vehicles is that they're not running Gideon Ally of Zendikar anymore, they're running Gideon of the Trials, the full four. I'm not 100% sure why that is, Um, uh, whether it has something to do with being able to um, uh, defend this Gideon better um, versus Flyers. You know, the blue white deck and some of the other decks have a lot of flying power, so uh, Gideon isn't as good against Flyers. But uh, that's something to keep in mind because getting of the trials is relatively low for Planeswalker and any four of Planeswalker that ends up dominating in standard will almost certainly have be, get a chance to hit 25 or 30 at some point.
1: Uh, okay, sure. Getting into the trials. It is it is a cool card. Uh, you know, I, I certainly do not uh, I do not doubt that and it's got the that, that fringe modern playability too, right? Cuz there's all those combos with uh... Oh, I don't remember the card off the top of my head, but I know there's like infinite turn combos types of thing. So it's kind of cool. Who knows? Maybe. Going to be a wild pro tour. Um, Okay, let's jump into segment three, our topic of the week. Do you want to talk? We should probably start with the pro tour. I think it's probably the better topic to start with here. Um, Again, hour of devastation standard starts uh, in about an hour and a half. I think like, close to midnight was the expected time. Um, You know, we know that there's going to be blue. probably expecting white Monument, God Pharaoh's Gift, they're going to be showing up. The Mono Red deck uh, is going to be there. Um, You know, we talked about some of the standard specs that might be showing up in those decks or in response to those decks, like Gear Hulk, maybe Vizier Menagerie, maybe Angel of Sanctions. Um, You know, is there anything, you know, is there anything left at the Pro Tour right now that you're kind of interested in or thinking about that, you know, you want people to know of?
0: Well, it's important to remember that <clears throat> the standard open in Cincinnati on July 15th, the top uh, finishing deck was Four-Color Control. Um, it only ran two creatures, one Torrential Gear Hulk and one Linvala the Preserver, five Planeswalkers, including two copies of Dovin Bon, uh, Jace Unraveler of Secrets, Nahiri the Harbinger, and one Nicol Bolas God Pharaoh. Spells included two Cast Out, two abrade, one Blessed Alliance, two Censor, two Essence Scatter, Four Glimmer of Genius, two Harness Lightning, two Magma Spray, two Negate, one Pull from Tomorrow, three Supreme Will, two Fumigate, one Radiant Flames. So this is truly, uh, you know, the classic control build. Um, Some Planeswalkers, a couple of value utility creatures that interact well with your spells and or help you stabilize the board. Um, And then just a whole bunch of effort to control grindy mid range creature decks.
1: Okay. Yeah, we haven't really seen too much like true control take a real foothold in standard, right? I mean, when was the last time a real control deck was around and healthy and lasted? Uh, I mean, the last time I remember seeing it was, uh, what was it? Sphinx's Revelation. It's probably been more recent than that, but it doesn't seem like I remember talking about those archetypes too often at this point.
0: Well, I mean, the the second most played deck right now in Magic Online, according to Goldfish, who is drawing from a reduced data pool at this point, is blue-red control, which is of course just four torrential gear hulks and a whole bunch of counter spells and a whole bunch of burn spells. This is blue, you know, counter control has been a an archetype in Magic, especially in Standard, since way back in the day. It comes and it goes. Right now, it is ascendant. Um, there. Almost certainly are going to be a bunch of players that get on it just on the basis that Hour of Devastation looks well uh, set up for this weekend. This is the five mana sorcery out of Hour of Devastation. The card and the set have the same name. All creatures lose indestructible until end of turn. Hour of Devastation deals five damage to each creature and each non-Bolus Planeswalker. Um, That seems like uh, an excellent sweeper heading into this weekend, um, at least against the decks that can't recurse out of the graveyard. So... You know, there's, there's definitely going to be some of that blue-red control going on, uh, and uh, that deck um, being joined by this four-color build that's been a little bit more scant in the metagame, who knows. Um, on, the, on the aggro side, the first and third most played decks on Magic Online, which tends to skew a little more aggro just generally... Um, Because people, you know, the clock is more of an issue on Magic Online, and so aggro decks give you an edge if you can get comfortable with them and they're good. Um, Mardu Vehicles is still the the most played uh, deck online. Um, Mono Red Aggro is pretty close, but a percentage point behind. Um, The Blue-White Monument decks are doing very well at about 9%. Um, And then there's, you know, teamer Energy builds that don't have Etherworks Marvel and yet still can value people out. There's green black energy builds um, that use things like walking ballista with winding constrictor to work that strategy from a few months ago. Um, Green red pummeler could be a deck that does well. Zombies has fallen since the last pro tour, but there are both mono black and blue black versions floating around. Um, And, uh, you know, they still seem pretty solid. Some of them are using uh, Gisa and Garolf now. This is the uh, 4 4 for 4 uh legendary creature mythic from Eldritch Moon that says when it enters the battlefield put the top four cards of your library into your graveyard during each of your turns you may cast a zombie creature card from your graveyard that's an interesting little bit of grindy tech um you know that indicates that the people are expecting to see more of a mid-rangey grind fest um and want to make sure that their zombie deck is is tuned accordingly
1: so, so there's a lot of archetypes floating around in standard right now um clearly a, a lot of a lot of choices for the player who wants to show up in the, my impression here. My takeaway from all of this that we're seeing um, is that even though it's a, a good looking standard, I, I really have no interest in buying really me, any of these standard cards. I mean, like the cataclysmic gear Hulk is interesting and the angel of sanctions, you know, if you really want to roll the dice, those are kind of fun because they're so cheap. And they can spike so hard, but, you know, anything that we kind of already have a line on, whether it was Champion of Wits or Pharaoh's Gift or, um, you know, any of that type of stuff, just it really doesn't excite me you know, we're talking about a standard. I think it's important to remember that a lot of players are still really burned out on standard, right? Like that is, you know, you talk to people who own stores, who run events, um, who, who kind of see these numbers on a week in a week out basis. And they all sing the same tune, which is stand that bad standard really crushed their um, attendance and it has not recovered at all. And, you know, if you think about the average player who, Uh, watched three of their decks in a row get banned or something like that, or even didn't even get anything banned. Just, you know, their friends deck got banned, or they just, the, the tumultuous nature of the format just made them sick of it uh i mean it was pretty it's pretty easy for them to just kind of put it down and be like i'll come back later um because they're not going to rush back and there's not really a reason to rush back and in even a pro tour like this that comes along and maybe it has great versatility um variety in the decks and there's several options like you know they're going out they're playing volleyball they're playing well, league of legends more likely but you know there's just a lot of other things to distract you at this time of year and if you're not already kind of in the habit of going to M every friday at this point if you'd stop going for a while maybe you set up some other recurring Friday night plans. Uh, I just I don't see a lot of players returning to this. And even in the cards that spike, I think you might have trouble selling through them and really making a profit. So I guess my takeaway here is that you really uh, I would not be eager to be dumping money into this pro tour no matter what.
0: Yeah. Uh, that really is the bottom line for me as well. Like, I'm going to make a few speculative, small scale purchases, but n- nothing that really matters or swings my scales one way or the other. Just more for fun than anything else. Yeah, so say you're doing uh, it
1: just for fun, right? Like, it seems like that's your entire you, well, I, your I, reason for doing it is just you find it amusing. Like, the amount of money is is irrelevant.
0: I, I like to roll the dice on small scale stuff here and there. Most of it hits, some of it doesn't. None of that really matters in the end compared to the stuff we're doing in Europe and whatever, which is just you know much safer plays. I mean, there's no comparison between buying a card in Europe for fifty that you know is worth a hundred back home and buying a five dollar card that you're hoping might hit ten minus fees like it's just it's apples and oranges um yeah. And people need to get out of the habit of trying, uh, of chasing specs on the Pro Tour because it's, you know, there's going to be people bragging on Monday that they called it. (laughs) But there's a selection bias because the, you know, for every guy that that gets to say that, there's going to be five guys whose pick didn't didn't make it. I mean, I sent out a call this afternoon on Twitter saying, you know, what card do you guys think is going to spike? And I got like 15 different answers. So, you know, there's no consensus. And going into this Pro Tour, the decks are, um, you know, there's a lot of almost 10% of the field decks. It's not like six months ago when there was a defined you know, two decks that were making up 50 to 70% of the field and you knew what metagame you were targeting and, the, and you were trying to play the guessing game of is it going to shift to hate that, in which case I'll go next level and I'll play the deck that beats the deck that beats that. This is much more about... Um, I think this tur- Pro Tour is going to be about play skill. I think it's going to be about luck. Um, and it's going to reward the teams that got to test for a long period of time and, and predicted the meta game correctly. Because you got to get both of those components correctly. Like, if in your house you think certain decks are going to show up as a major presence and then they don't, then you get a lot of your testing gets thrown out the window. If you made certain sideboard choices because you're expecting these three decks to be 40% of the meta and they just don't show up. And more people are running, you know, a version like yours, but it's tuned to for the mirror match. Then you can be in trouble, and so there's a lot of variables in play here, and it's just too risky. Uh, it's not the kind of situation you want to be pushing your chips in deep.
1: This is fun time. I, I want to point out one th- other thing that uh, you kind of mentioned briefly there is, you know, the people talking about, oh, I did so well, blah, blah, blah. This weekend I, I was so right. Like not only is are you 100% correct about like the selection bias, like you're going to hear from the people who got it right, but not never from the people who got it wrong. You're also going to see that the people who got it right might not have actually bought any cards and probably don't have to sell them. Right. So like it's really easy <laughs> For me to sit here yeah. in front of my computer and be like, for for you and I to go, oh, Cataclysmic and Gear Hulk is awesome. Like this is a great spec, blah blah blah. Uh, if it misses, we just won't talk about it. <laughs> if we do hit it, James and I can go on Twitter and be like, yeah, we told you guys this card was going to be awesome and it looks great. But like, did we buy any copies? Are we faced with the reality of actually trying to sell through those copies? It's like, boy, Travis bought thirty. You know, maybe I bought thirty of them and I ended up paying like two twenty five a copy after all was a sudden done. And now. I uh, by monday morning on t c g player they're like six fifty and I'm like trying to get people to buy copies and you know I don't sell through all of them, and I end up making like twenty five dollars for all of it for like tons of work and it's like that's not that's not impressive right It's just easier to type on Twitter that I call a card that went up seven dollars and it, it actually is to actually sell them and make real money so keep that in mind too that is always sort of peeved me a little bit when you know you get people who pat themselves on their back for their great calls and you know you see this a lot god you see this a lot with these like commons and uncommons people are real jazzed oh yeah i told you this common was going to go up like who the hell was specking out a t- quarter common when it was you know uncommon when it's go up to two dollars like of course it was going to go up we can't do anything with it you can't make money on that buy list don't even move i can... i found myself more and more <laughs> agitated with some of the uh some of the Culture and community around this uh, little niche hobby of ours over the past several weeks and months.
0: <laughs> and the thing is, like nobody humble brags more than I do uh, on Twitter. Like, yeah, I, that, is I, fair, I, I, that is a fair I,
1: claim. <laughs> I, 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 I'm the,
0: I'm the first person to point out um, when something went right, and I don't do it because I want you guys to ego stroke me. I do it so that people can see a demonstrated pattern of success, but. That also means that I feel fully obligated to share major losses. So like I bought a bunch of Expedition uh, Eye of Ugin for like 200 plus um, when that looked like it was going to be the hottest Expedition forever. And then the deck got banned out of existence and the card got banned in Modern. And now that's a $60 card. And I lost like six, $700 on those. And and I told everybody that that's what happened because you need to see both sides of the coin. It, it, it's important to face the realities of your situation and to balance your losses against your wins to make sure that you're actually making money doing this. Because if you're like roughly netting zero, you know, on either side of the scales and you're just doing the empty G finance stuff as a hobby, that's fine. You can totally do that. But if you, you're serious about it and you, you want to make money doing it and you don't want to be doing it if you're not making money – then A, you got to track yourself pretty carefully. You got to get a spreadsheet together and you got to update it. Um, and B, you got to be honest when you're communicating with other people in the community about you know how you're actually doing, so that you know you can be open to learning experiences. Because if you set yourself up as the expert who's never wrong, but you never actually look yourself in the mirror when you are, then you're probably not getting very far.
1: Uh, yeah, that's a fair way to describe that. Um, okay, so we could kind of go back and forth on this for a while longer, Uh, let's jump over to our other topic this week because I think it is more interesting. Um, So last week, James and I had a discussion about Wizards making use of sales data um, and some of their sort of competency as a company um, in the marketplace. Well, we ended up getting feedback from a listener, and uh, we're going to be very careful here. Um, the edited episode may end up getting edited in case we accidentally say something that we shouldn't. Um, but they had some interesting information for us, um, and you know, James, I'm going to let you share it uh, because you had a good way of wording it earlier that sounded pretty safe. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what we heard?
0: Yeah. So the listener is a marketing professional, works in the in a marketing agency type environment, um, doing marketing type work for big clients. And at one point, they were quoting something out—a major project for Wizards, and it featured a whole bunch of kind of cutting-edge, exciting stuff that Wizards should be doing.
1: <laughs> Which, and by Wizards. the way, we can't—we can't tell you what it was, but it was cool. Like yeah, but, the, the description of what they were describing was really cool. It, it's all—it's all
0: stuff that we would have been people would have been impressed by. Um, it, it wouldn't have really have moved the needle one way or the other for the entire brand, but it would have been a good. Good program. Um, and and there was good reason to do it. And it, I can only imagine that whatever was being charged for it was totally reasonable. And they committed to the, the project. And the project was already in, like, the plan, past planning and into, like, the first stages of execution. And then they pulled the plug and just said, ah, we're not really sure about this and just walked away. And, you know, as somebody who's in the agency space, this stuff happens. But... <laughs> It's a huge red flag that makes you never want to work with that client again, and only serves to underscore what we were saying last week about how Wizards has failed over time, despite you know the revolving door of bodies through through that organization, to demonstrate future forward um, commitment to you know, next generation marketing techniques to fully embracing, embracing social media in a non-reactive way, but in a proactive way to embrace um, uh, location-based uh, and, and event-based, um, you know, super marketing, like doing really cool, exciting things that will get picked up in the media. And to be fair to them, they have done a little bit of, it, of this. There have been some cool stuff at some pro tours where they've like taken over, you know, a portion of the sidewalk outside the event or whatever and set up photo opportunities that had a decent chance of propagating through platforms like Instagram where people just randomly walking by might take a picture and catch a piece of trademarked material that might echo through the blogosphere and and allow people to have a fresh encounter with the brand that might get them to pick up a pack one day. Some of that has gone on, but it's been so minimal and there's still this thing where like magic, the gathering on the whole you ask anybody on the street, and they've sort of kind of heard of it, maybe. Maybe they know it's a card game. Beyond that, they probably don't know anything. And that just doesn't make sense for a game that's been around for 25 years. I mean, if you ask somebody what Monopoly's is all about, I mean, that game's got an even deeper, richer history. But most people aren't playing it. Like, did you play a game of Monopoly this year? I don't think I've played one in 10 years.
1: Nope, I have not. Uh, and most people, almost everybody will tell you that they won't play it because they hate the relationships <laughs> and what it does to relationships. So there's right. almost like a cultural zeitgeist of not playing that game because you did it as a kid and you realized it was miserable.
0: Yeah, so I mean, there's, but but what has kept it current is that they continuously connect that brand to brands that are fresher and more powerful. So they'll make like a Metal Gear Solid Risk. They'll make a Transformers-based Monopoly. They'll do a Game of Thrones Monopoly. They'll do whatever it takes to keep that thing front and center, even though it's not that great a game and it's way past its prime. Whereas Magic lives inside its little niche Way bubble. past its Optimus Prime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Magic just li- li- seems to live inside this weird niche bubble where you never see any advertising outside of the game. It's almost like they're s- they-, they just gave up on pulling new bodies into the program. And they largely rely on the player base to kind of recruit amongst their own friends. I mean, that that really is the primary onboarding technique. And if that's the case, then we should be, the discussion should largely be about how do you create programs that break, that enable people to act as ambassadors? And they've tried little things. They, people probably that are relatively new to the game would know this, but like 10, 15 years ago, there used to be this thing where you could like give, you could pick up cards at an LGS and then give them to your friend for free. Um, and it was just like, you got like this little starter pack um, to try to onboard. If you think about the conversation we had last week about how they don't really manage LGS relationships or the data that could be generated there and the connections between sales and play patterns and so forth, well, part of that is not providing a really cool, attractive funnel. I mean, the net present value of a Magic the Gathering player is way higher than even something like a Call of Duty player. Call of Duty player might, you know, buy consistently five an $80 video game for five, six years in a row. So they're worth several hundred dollars, right? They might buy some add-ons and stuff along the way. But let's just say for argument's sake that any particular video game brand might be a $500 a decade kind of uh, uh, NPV. Um, A Magic player might be worth $5,000 once you get them really deep into the game. What that says to me is that the intro packages should be robust, they should be generous, and they should be free. Because... Giving away a free thing is something you do when you know that the value of that client is super high. And we don't do that. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And client retention in the form of really generous player rewards that are based on how many different things you participate in and how much different stuff you buy. We talked about that last week, how the combination of both participation and purchasing should lead to a rewards program that could easily be justified by the brand loyalty that it engenders. So... You know, I wasn't surprised to hear that story. Um, I seriously doubt that that's the only story we could get if we really went like mining inside the community. I'm sure we could dredge up a whole bunch more. And I think that, you know, the bottom line message is that Wizards has to do better. They, 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 I'm not convinced that the team that's in place is really up to date in the way that they need to be to face the challenges of the next 20 years of magic. Um, There's a very strong possibility that the game gets overwhelmed by the next wave of digital products as we get into quantum computing, as we get into vir- heavy du- virtual reality, as people's living rooms get transformed into D&D dungeons. Um, I think it's going to be harder and harder to convince people to leave the house to go play a paper game of Magic, even with the social um, benefits of doing so. And, I'm, you know, it's looking more and more like uh, Magic Digital Next is going to be some kind of Hearthstone clone slash ripoff um, and is not a true replacement for Magic Online, which leads leaves the whole existence of Magic Online in doubt. Because if they're putting all their chips into the Magic Digital Next box, but that's really going to be more of a uh, onboarding portal for the brand as a whole, um, using a Hearthstone-esque type of play experience, but you're not going to be able to say play standard and draft, for instance, then I, there's so many disconnects there that I think are going to potentially alienate existing players, and I'm not convinced that they're going to fulfill the onboarding objectives that they seem to be chasing.
1: Well, that is a lot to digest there. Um, I mean, let me see if I can remember it all to cover it. Uh, so I completely agree on the idea of it, it's going to have trouble keeping up with what other people, can, what, with what you can do. Um, it, it, the game has sustained. The game has sustained itself very well in the face of other electronic hobbies that have continued to grow over the last 25 years. So, you know, you have to give them credit uh give them credit there obviously when magic started um you know that was 1993 what was that that was like nes the snes had just come out right it was like right around that time period um and now it's 2017 right and the game is still doing pretty well and we are seeing the v- you know we're at the point where vr is is breaking out so they've kept the game playable and current but uh yeah like vr seems like it's really poised to sort of take over and you you know you kind of got to wonder like is it worth going to fnm when you can have your own D&D experience in your living room like you know virtually and all of your friends are in your raiding party together and the four of you are walking through wooded pathways type of thing i mean <laughs> the the possibilities there are really mind-boggling and even beyond that it just seems like there's they're having they're fighting more and more for your attention and space and they're not keeping up and they could get left in the dust and what really struck me with the with what this uh this individual reached out to us and kind of explained was just sort of like how disorganized, discombobulated, disconnected um and wizards fearful. sounded
0: and, and fear there was a theme of of fear of the unknown, fear of the untried, reluctance to risk budget.
1: Yeah, which is just sort of wild. It's like, you know, you guys are a pretty major company. I would feel like your your team should at least have a have a good feel for this. You've seen how it's worked before. uh You understand what this can give you, and just by the sounds of it, was like Wizards was like amateurs, like a company that had just started and ha- hadn't found their footing, didn't understand their customers, didn't know that where they were going yet. And to be perfectly honest, you know, assuming that this is accurate, right? I mean, that's a big assumption. Um, it honestly sounded worse than I would have expected, right? Like I kind of figured that they were just, weren't making the best decisions. Maybe they, you know, had a little bit of, um, you know, having a little bit of seeing the forest for the trees type of problem. But the way this was described, it was like, they didn't know what a forest was. <laughs> I mean, it was just like oh, like a whole other level of incompetence. So you know, we all we have to do is is we can go on what was shared here. Um, and we, you know, we have really have no good way of verifying any of it. Um, and we certainly couldn't share it even if we did. But it is, uh, it was just striking to hear. Um, and and, and, that, and
0: to be fair, we don't have wizard side of the story.
1: No, no, for for sure, for sure. I mean, there's a lot that could happen there, too. You know, all we have is one perspective.
0: Sure. But because it jives with the other themes that we've been exploring, um, you know, I just think it's worth people keeping in mind as they're figuring out how much to commit. I mean, between the two of us, we've probably got 100 grand worth of cards um, under lock. And you got to start asking yourself, like, what's my exit? Like, is it three years out? Is it five years out? Is it 10 years out? Is my black lotus that I got? You know, a couple of years ago, going to be a twenty thousand dollar object, or will it be it be stalled in the mid single digit thousands forever? Um, is that going to crash one day? Is you know, what what do you want to be left holding when twenty thirty rolls around? Um, these are questions that are worth asking yourself if you're pretty deep in the hobby.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I have already been um, st- kind of parsing, not parsing, um, piecing out my personal. Collection now. I've sold half of my dual collection recently. I mean, it was just forty revised duels of varying quality, so it wasn't like that big of a deal. But I got rid of half of them because they weren't doing anything for me, and I wanted the cash back. And I've been selling a lot of my modern playsets um, that were worth more money. And part of that was because I just wasn't playing, and it wasn't worth holding on to them uh, more so, you know, than any other thing. But for sure, you know, I we were talking about this today, some of the guys um, from another cast about kind of like the future and what to do and. You know, it's like, you know, if you're making your living in this field, in this space, uh, it has a real shelf life, right? Like at some point, your ability to profit here will basically dry up. Um, and it's just like, you know, you got to make sure that you're not getting left high and dry when that happens. And, and I'm not looking to, you know, strike fear in everyone's heart and stir up a panic. I, that's not what I'm shooting for here. Um, you know, I do think the game has a lot of healthy time left in it. Uh, and the game Magic as a game could survive for another thirty years, but um, you know, just keep in mind that the market's not always going to look like what it looks like today, and uh, you know, you don't want to you don't want to be without an escape plan. Yeah, I
0: mean, it's worth pointing out that in the most recent investor documents, they they said Magic was was plus, I think, almost ten percent year over year. So, which surprised the shit out of me because that doesn't jive with anything I've been hearing at the LGS level. But it is important to realize that. Magic makes its money at the distributor level, not the LGS level, per se, and that also there's the big box stores to consider, which we don't really have any visibility on their sales patterns. So we don't know whether while standard was doing terribly, whether you know forty percent more kids were buying a certain set because it just looked better on the shelf. You know that's that's not something we have any access to. So you know, magic's not doing poorly. It's not even necessarily in decline. It's just not growing anywhere near as fast as it could be under better brand stewardship. And, you know, when we talk about what the experience is going to be like doing, you know, playing VR in your living room in five or ten years, that's going to be a Blizzard Activision experience. It's not going to be a Hasbro Wizards experience. That much is clear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You think they're bad with Moto. What do you think? Put them in charge of a VR (laughs) landscape. Oh, my God. They're going to be like,
0: insert your credit card. Um, Where? Insert your credit card. Yeah, but it's VR. No, but insert your credit card. Um, I don't have one of those anymore. Insert your credit card.
1: No, I, I see it being way worse. It's going to be like, it's going to short circuit your house. It's going to like blow the fuse <laughs> in your apartment or like, you know, it's really going to be terrible. Uh, they'll have graphics or something that, you know, cause muscle spasms or seizures <laughs> and they will refuse to update them for months and months at a time. It'll be really just remarkable. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so we are well over an hour now. Is there any last thoughts you want to share with our listeners? Uh if you're
0: serious about making money this weekend, you gotta stay up late. That's that's definitely a key when the tournaments in Japan. Um and and as we said, there's hype spikes are inevitable. Doesn't mean you're gonna be able to sell them. That's probably the best advice we can give all weekend.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I already said I'm staying away, so do what you will okay uh james that's a wrap for the week where can our listeners find you
0: Uh, as per usual you guys can find me at mgg critic on twitter as well as via my weekly articles on mggprice.com this weekend for the pro tour i did get the preview article up i will not be able to do round by round uh coverage all weekend but i will be putting up relevant blog uh posts and
1: notes just shameful
0: (laughs) that uh, cover the most uh interesting details of the weekend um from my vacation spot
1: Okay. And I am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I Uh, I write every Monday for MTG Price. I do the Watchtower series. I do the Cartel Aristocrats podcast Monday evenings. And if you like playing magic, check out scry.land. Find magic in your area. Recently updated so that it will now automatically pull all events so you don't have to worry about missing anything anymore.
0: Sweet. Uh, I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com pro trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection
1: management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 78, MTG Fast Finance. James, I have enjoyed our time together. I will see you next week.
0: Thank you, Travis. And we'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.